some of you that wasn't very enthusiastic. I won't mention any names. Get all my electronics hooked up here. I was recently asked a question uh, by one of you, and it sounded like a fairly simple question on the surface, and yet it's evolved into a three-lesson sermon miniseries. And the reason for that is because familiar texts and familiar topics sometimes need to be revisited. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 10, it says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12 of 2 Peter 1. For this reason, Peter says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. In verse 12, Peter says, I know you know what I'm going to tell you, but I need to keep on telling you because you can't have too many reminders. Verse 13, he continues, he elaborates. He said, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Peter said, as long as I'm here, I'm going to keep telling you these familiar things, because you can't have too many reminders. And then in verse 15, he basically says, and I'm going to make sure that even after I'm gone, you remember them. Moreover, I'll be careful to ensure you that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Yes? Familiar topics need revisitation from time to time. Even topics as familiar as baptism. Now you may think we know everything there is to know about baptism. Well, maybe you do. Then again, <laughs> you see, I was recently asked a question. And that question was, what are the differences between John's baptism and the Christian baptism or Jesus baptism of the Great Commission? And then I was asked beyond that, a second question. Did those disciples that were baptized under John's baptism need to be baptized again with New Testament baptism? And my automatic answer, without thinking it through, digging it through, just off the top of my head was, yeah, uh, they were baptized under John's baptism. They had to be rebaptized or baptized for the, the one Christian baptism uh, that we see in the New Testament based on Acts chapter 19, 1 through 5, which was just read to you in our scripture reading. However, at the same time, I have this problem with people who refuse to re-examine their convictions. That's how we grow. I, I believe it's pretty arrogant if somebody says, I'm not even going to take a look at it because I know all there is to know about it. And I don't want to be one of those people. So, even though my automatic answer was yes, based on Acts 19, 1-5, I dug into it a little bit more. And you might be surprised at what deep waters I got into. <laughs> uh, literally, maybe, not literally, figuratively speaking, of course. And the more I dug into it, the more I found. And the more I found, the more I learned. And so I want to share with you over three sermons, 
what I found. Now, before I do, I want to ask you something. Please do not just assume that you know everything there is to know about baptism. You may, but don't assume that. Let's, let's take a fresh look at these two questions in particular. A couple of other things I want to warn you about in advance. Some of these scriptures may challenge you a little bit. They might broaden your horizons a little bit. A few of them have me, and some of the things I've read have made me go, hmm, okay, maybe. You see, we must always be willing to re-examine our own convictions. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul said, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He wrote that to the Corinthians. He'd already written them their first epistle. There was probably three epistles written to them, one of which we don't have, but we have at least two. And this was at the very end of the second one. He told them that they need to, needed to re-examine themselves to see if they were in the faith. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6 through 6, tell us to test the spirits. So, I for one am glad to go back and re-look at some things. I was kind of intrigued. And happy to learn some things I didn't know before about fasting with that last little sermon series. It's like, okay, it's good, good to learn, good to know. We must be willing to continue to study to show ourselves approved. Continue to study to show ourselves approved as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. We must always be ready to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord so as not to be led astray. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 14 through 18. You see, a Christian who will not even consider rethinking, restudying what they are committed to, either already knows everything there is to know, has deceived themselves into thinking they do, or just don't care. I'm going to ask you to please take notes. I'm going to make an effort to speak slower than normal. <laughs> please take notes. A lot of these are just references you can look up later. Some of them you are familiar with. Some of them you may not be. Also, please make sure that you understand what I said before you come to me and say, You said! <laughs> uh, Think about it first, and I will just claim the same thing as Jesus did in John 19, 23. If I have spoken evil, that is, if I have spoken something that's not biblically, then tell me what it is. But if I spoke what is biblical and right and good, then why do you have a problem with me? So, anyway, let's begin. And I won't answer all your questions this morning. It's a three-sermon series. First question. What are the differences between John's baptism... And the New Covenant Christian baptism, like we see in Acts 2.38, for example, but the Christian baptism of what we commonly call the Great Commission. And of course, that Great Commission is seen in Matthew 28.18-20, where it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is the difference between John's baptism and that baptism? That is our question for the morning. In order to answer that question, let's first take a look at their similarities. Before we talk about the differences between John's and this baptism, let's look at where they are alike. Let's look at their similarities. Baptism, in both cases, 
both John's and the New Testament or Jesus' baptism is a burial. The Greek word baptizo, if you look it up, it means to dip, immerse, plunge, or submerge. I put those in that order so that you would have an acronym, DIPS, D-I-P-S. That's why it's like that. So you can remember, it's never a sprinkling, it's always an immersion, a submerging. Submerging? Submerging. <laughs> uh, most of you already know that, but both of them were that. For example, and I wanted to do a little side-by-side -side here. John the Baptist's baptism was a burial and therefore required much water. John 3 and verse 23, John was baptizing where there was much water. Just as he baptized Jesus and afterward Jesus came up out of the water, Matthew 3.16 and Mark 1.10. Didn't have just a little water, needed a whole bunch because it's an immersion. Okay? Now, Christian baptism, as we all know, is also a burial and therefore requires much water. In Acts chapter 8, verses 38 and 9, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and came up out of the water. We would also see, if we were to read Romans 6, 3 through 11 and Colossians 2, 12, that baptism is a burial. This is something these two have in common. In both cases, John's and Christian, they are both burials. Number two, other similarities. Baptism in both cases required belief. John's baptism, as well as Christian baptism, requires belief in the message proclaimed. Please open your Bibles. We are going to look at a few of these when it comes to John the Baptist's in particular. We know most of the ones on Christian baptism. But open your Bible to Matthew chapter 21, would you please, in verse 32. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 32. Matthew chapter 21 in verse 32 says, Jesus speaking here, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. They needed to believe in what John was teaching. They needed to believe the message John proclaimed. That was a requirement in John's baptism. As we know, Christian baptism also requires belief in the message proclaimed. Mark 16, 15 and 16, he told them to go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believed and was baptized would be saved. We know from Acts chapter eight, uh, Acts chapter two, verses thirty-seven through forty-one. We know there that those who gladly received his word, they, they were cut to the heart, and then those that gladly received his word, they believed the message, were baptized. We also know from Acts chapter eight, verses twelve and thirteen, that when the Samaritans believed Philip as he preached the good news, that they believed him, and they were baptized. So again, a second similarity in the two baptisms. Thirdly, baptism in both cases required confession. 
required confession. Please back up in your Bibles with me to, can't see what I highlighted, no, go forward to Mark 1.5. Mark 1.5. I know some of you are taking notes. I'm seeking to stall and speak as slowly as I can. <laughs> it's not easy for me, I just want you to know. Mark's uh, account here in Mark 1.5, Matthew 3.6 says basically the same thing. But John the Baptist's baptism required a confession of sin. Remember we was talking in the adult class this morning about humility? Mark's required a confession of sin. John the Baptist did. In Mark 1 and verse 5 it says, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Of course, we know that Christian baptism requires confession, confession of the Christ, confession that he is Lord. We know from Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32 that Jesus said that if we do not confess him, that he will not confess us before the Father. We know from Acts 8, 37 that the eunuch confessed him and we would see the confession of Christian baptism in Acts chapter 19 and verse 18 as well. Again, both required confession. John's required confession of sin. Christian baptism required confession of Christ. See, so that's pretty easy. Well, it is to this point. Well, it's easy as we continue, but it might be a little surprising to some as we continue. Other similarities. Baptism in both cases required repentance. John's baptism, you can kind of see him there pointing, as it were, or a depiction of him pointing there, pointing at the Pharisees and the guards and, and teaching. And John's baptism required repentance. And the reason I've got Matthew 3, 1 through 2, and 7 through 11 underlined, that is a reading that I do want us to go to, and we will see how John's baptism absolutely required repentance. There was no doubt about it. Matthew chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. They had to change. This was not a suggestion. This was a required commandment. Look in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... That is John's baptism, what he was baptizing for. He said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't show up here to be baptized if you're not going to change. It's pointless. There's no sense being born again of the water if you're not going to live a different life once you're, once you're baptized. He says in verse 9, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Repentance was a requirement of John's baptism. We're going to read from Luke 3 later on. We would also notice that from Acts 13, 24, and 19, 4. And of course, I don't know if you can read it or not, depending on the color scheme and how good your eyes are, but it says here, repentance is not an option. It's a commandment 
of God. We know from Acts 2 and verse 38, it's not just baptism, it's repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. When Peter preached to the crowd in Acts 3 and verse 19, told them to repent. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 23, we are buried with him, as we said baptism is a burial, we are buried with him, and then we rise to walk in newness of life. We're to live a different way. There's repentance required. Just being baptized. When a person comes in and they're just baptized and they come up and they come to church a few times and go back to living their life, they might as well have stayed home and, you know, walk through the rain. Uh, it didn't do them any good. Because baptism in both John's baptism and Christian baptism requires repentance. We would also notice from Colossians 2 and verse 12, through chapter 3 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes to the Church of Christ in first century Colossae. And he talks in verse 12 about them being buried with Christ in baptism and forgiven. And then he goes on to talk about this new life, this, this turned around life, this life that's turned to God. And he says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, verses 1 and following, that if they have been raised up with Christ, if they have been baptized and raised up with Him, like he was talking about in chapter 2, that they need to set their mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, they needed to be honest with one another, put off this old man of sin and all of that. Both baptisms required repentance. Then the one that might throw some people for a loop occasionally. The fact is this. Both baptisms, the Bible says clearly, were for the forgiveness of sins. That surprises some people. Mark 1 and verse 4 says of John's baptism, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's what the Bible says. Look it up in your own. Luke 3 and verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Kind of let that one just kind of settle there for a few minutes. Christian baptism we know as well is for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 2.38 in Acts 22 and verse 16, where the Apostle Paul was told, Why do you delay? Arise and be baptized. Calling on his name. Uh, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, you might think, well, how could John's baptism be for the remission of sins? Because Jesus hadn't died yet. That's a good question. One we'll get to eventually. So, we would notice that both the baptism of John and Christian baptism have several essential elements in common. Both were a burial. Both required belief in the gospel message. This is just a recap of what we've just seen. Both required confession. Both required repentance. Both were for the forgiveness of sins. Then I added this one. And both were from heaven. Both of these commands to be baptized as John's baptism or Christ's baptism, different times, and by Christ I mean New Testament Christian baptism, 
But they were both from heaven. If we were to read Luke 7, 29 through 30, we would see that Jesus told us or, or let us know in no uncertain terms, he asked the question, he said, John's baptism, was it from heaven or men? And, and the answer is obvious, it's a rhetorical question. And obviously if we read Acts chapter 2, the whole, well, chapter 2 verses 1 through 41, obviously we know that the Holy Spirit came in miraculous form and came down on the disciples in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, not the disciples, just the, the 12 apostles, came down on the 12 apostles and so that what they taught was guided by the Holy Spirit. We know in verses 5 through 13 of Acts chapter 2 that they're speaking in tongues, all these different recognizable languages, and all these different people from all these different places all over the area heard them speaking in their own tongues. Then Peter stands up and preaches that gospel message, including repentance and baptism as terms of admission into the kingdom, the church of Christ. So, both baptisms in their time were from heaven. And to reject either was to reject God's will for the soul who did so. Jesus made that clear in the Gospels in Luke, that, uh, that those who rejected John's baptism, rejected God's purpose for themselves, just like people under the new covenant that will not humble themselves and submit to God's requirements to enter the kingdom cannot therefore do so. So, we see the presence of all of these elements. If we read through the accounts of John the Baptist and the baptism of John, when we read through Matthew 3, we saw belief, repentance, and confession. If we were to read Mark chapter 1, we would see preaching, baptism, repentance, confession, and remission of sins, all in Mark 1, verses 4 and 5. And in Luke chapter 3, we would see most of them as well. Turn with me to Luke 3, and let's just read his account, shall we? Luke chapter 3. We're going to see a lot of these reflected. I picked out selected verses, but if we read the whole accounts, like I said, we'll see a lot of them. Luke chapter 3, let us begin in verse 1. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I don't know if you can read it from back there, but it says it's what one does after baptism that makes or breaks a Christian. And that was true with making or breaking a person, whether they submitted to the New Testament uh, 
Great Commission baptism of Jesus or whether John's, as we continue on here in the book of John, it would be what they did afterward, that repentance that would make or break them. He says in verse 7, or it says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which was not, does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, it's what you do not just at baptism, but after baptism, whichever one we're talking about. He continues on. Verse 10, the people ask him, saying, What will we do then? Luke gives us a little bit more detailed account. And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to him to be baptized said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And keep in mind, these were not popular people. And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate. Can you imagine telling a Roman soldier not to intimidate anybody? It was in their DNA. It's what they did. It's like telling the Marines to play nice, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those deals. Or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation, all reasoned in their hearts about him, whether he was the Christ or not. Having looked at some of the similarities, given you verses, now let's look at a few of the differences between the two baptisms. Some of the differences between John's baptism and New Testament Christian baptism as we see in the Great Commission in Acts 2 and etc. John's baptism was for the Jews. Acts 13 and verse 24. You would see that if you read that. John also called for them to believe in the one to come after him. Acts 19.4. That was actually in our scripture reading this morning of Acts 19.1-5 that Matt read to us where the Apostle Paul said that John's baptism was one that called on people to believe in the one who was to come after him. Now Christian baptism, again as we have defined it, is going to have some differences. Christian baptism is for the whole world. If we were to read Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 9, we would see, for example, that Peter's message there on the day of Pentecost was that the message was for them, that is the Jews there on Pentecost, for their children, that's all generations, and all whom the Lord our God will call. People of all nations. We could confirm that by looking in Acts chapters 10 and 11. When we see Peter go to Cornelius' house and in his explanation, 
Peter says that he realizes now that men from every nation who humble themselves and do God's will are acceptable to him. We know in Acts chapter 11 that when Peter went back to the church in Jerusalem, they couldn't understand how he'd gone in to eat at a Gentile's house. And after he explains to them how the Holy Spirit in miraculous form had fallen on Cornelius and his household, then the Jewish church there in Jerusalem says, well, then God has apparently given to the Gentiles the same gift he gave us at the beginning. We would also notice in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, an absolutely beautiful passage on the fact that Christian baptism is for the whole world, making us one in Christ, not just for the Jews the way John's was. Another difference we would see in Christian baptism is that Christian baptism, as in Acts 2, calls us to accept the forgiveness offered in Christ's sacrifice who already died for us. John's baptism looked forward to the forgiveness of sins that would be provided in the one to come after him, in the Christ that was yet to come. This is going to be a big difference later on. Okay, This is going to make a lot of sense later on. Not just as a statement, but as a reason something works the way it does. But... In Acts 2, it looks back to the sacrifice of Christ and calls us to accept the forgiveness offered in one who has already come. Also, Christian baptism is in Christ's name. Matthew 28, 18, and 19, what we call the Great Commission. Acts 2, and verse 38, that should say, not 28. Somebody typoed, hi, I'm somebody. Uh, Acts 2.38, it's in the name of Jesus in Acts 22.16. This is another difference. John the Baptist was not baptizing in Jesus' name. He was baptizing. It was from heaven, but Christian baptism is in Christ's name. And finally, Christian baptism adds us to the Lord's church, as we would see in Acts 2.37-47, through 47, where it says in verse 47 that the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. There's one more huge difference, but I'm going to save it for tonight. Kind of broken this up into chunks. Huge difference. I hope you're able to be here tonight. We will talk about it at length. I'll even supply you with a worksheet to look over at the end. But Looking at that slide right there for just a minute. Okay? Those differences we've just discussed. And then looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, which tells us that there is one church or body, one spirit, one hope, one going this way, and that there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Looking at that, which baptism do you think is relevant for us today? Well, it's pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious that when Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to the Lord's church there in Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, and he says there's one body or one church. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. There's only one baptism by this point in the middle of the first century that was acceptable to God. Well, it's pretty easy to figure out which one of those two that it was, unless you can prove that you're Jewish ancestry and you're looking to believe on somebody who is still yet to come that hasn't come yet. If you can't do that, then it's obvious that Christian baptism is the one that is valid for today. 
Christian baptism for all of those reasons we have discussed. And so the question is, as we close this morning, were you scripturally baptized? People can be baptized for a bunch of different reasons. Some in the denominational world today say, well, you, what your baptism is is a sign that God's already forgiven you. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Your baptism is a show that you're turning your life around. I don't find that in the scriptures anywhere. If you do, talk to me later and I'll repent. What I see in the scriptures is that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. We have to repent. And I see all those things we've talked about. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We must confess him, Romans 10, 10. And then we must repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. Not because they've already been forgiven, Acts 2, 38. And then finally, we must live faithfully unto death, Revelation 2, in verse 10. And I think this is key. I hope you can read that. Sometimes it doesn't look the same on the projector as it does on the computer. But this says up here, this is critical. Jesus paid it all, but he didn't do it all. And what that means is, Jesus paid the entire price for everybody's sin the world over. It's been paid. But you have to accept it. He can't accept it for you. He can't force it on you. You have to make the choice to accept that gift. He paid the entire thing. But whether or not you take the receipt and reap the benefits, up to you. Jesus paid it all, but he didn't do it all. We must be buried with Christ by baptism. You've heard of the facts of life. These are the facts of death. All die. None return. We will be judged by God's word. If you're looking for a scripture reference, it would be John 12 and verse 48. Judgment is final. That would be Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And hell is torment forever. That would be Matthew chapter 24. Get right with God before your name is engraved here. There's not a one of us, unless the Lord comes back while we're still drawing breath, there's not a one of us that's going to get out of this world without dying physically. Not a one of us. From the youngest one to the oldest, you're going to die. It's going to happen. There will be no return. We are judged by God's word. Judgment is final. Are you right? Have you done the one thing that Jesus could not do for you? He's done everything else. This morning, if you would repent and accept his invitation to be baptized, or if you need the prayers of the church because you've already done that and you are not living as you ought to, you have not lived a faithful life, if there's anything we can do to help you, please come to the front as we stand and sing.